and I have more baby weight on me than I did when I had him. <laughs> she looks great. It is really a pleasure to be here with among friends. So many of your faces I know and I've known through the years. I do have to correct something. I must have sent wrong in the email. I married my college sweetheart. Holly looked at me like, high school? <laughs> so he was my college sweetheart. Um, but it is, it is a joy to be here. And I will tell you, the first time I heard the other Tish Clark's name was she won a, or I think came in second in a beauty pageant. I think the first year we were here, and people at South Haven were coming up to BJ saying, I didn't know Tish was in beauty pageants. And, and this was, I didn't even know about it. This was before Sunday morning service or Sunday night, I'm not sure. And um, he said, she wasn't. And they, they looked at him funny. Well, she won second place. And, and he gets up in the pulpit. Now, this is when you know you've trained your husband really well. <laughs> he gets up in the pulpit, and he said, I knew that wasn't my wife because she would have won first. <laughs> <laughs> and I have yet to have met the woman. I have won since 1991. I still have not run into her. She's not here today, is she? No, I was really hoping to meet her today. <laughs> it is, this lesson to me is um, very important because sometimes we get very dis discouraged and we think we've been a Christian for how many years and we should be on the path to heaven and never make a mistake and never falter but we forget that we're still under construction in a lot of ways and we can get very discouraged so I want to take a step back a little bit and think about this morning our lives being under construction with God as the the task the, the master and the designer of our lives so when we think about and I'm gonna have to look back every now and then on this because sometimes I forget and I, I'm not where I need to be I had a really hard time figuring out how to start this lesson. And my husband, over the last few years, has had this theme where it's God's universe, so it's his rules. If you can make a universe, you can design the rules, right? So he told me the way I needed to start this, which if you knew my husband, those of you from South Haven, he does not know the business end of a hammer and a nail. <laughs> but he had a good idea on this. He said, you need to start this lesson truly with the basics. Well, who owns the building? Because if I were to come up and I were to come to a building in a construction process and I were to walk in and just start putting my design elements into it, would I have the right to do that? Would I have the right to look at the architectural blueprint and say, you've got the, the windows and the doors in the wrong place and the walls need to be moved over? So who owns this building that we're talking about? What's the purpose of the building? Um, what, what's the reason it's even being erected? Who gets to decide what the building should look like when it's finished? Does the seller get to decide that? Does the architect or the buyer? Do the building codes have a part to play in that? Because the building codes are those set of rules that specify the minimum standards for construction projects and exactly what the public health safety is going to be. All of these come together to make that decision. Who's gonna decide on the materials that go into the project? The cost of it, the structural durability, what happens if the building falls? Who's responsible for that? Is it the back to the builder? Is it the person that owns it now? The architect designer? Who's responsible for all this? Who's liable? What about the aesthetics? Who's going to decide what it gets to look like? What about the availability of the building? What's the purpose? Who gets to come in and enjoy the building? Well, you know, the world's blueprint is completely different from God's blue blueprint in life. Satan is the prince of this world, 
as such, he's the seller of its blueprint in a lot of ways, and we are buying it by the droves, aren't we? The architect of the design and the buyer of your soul. So what is his design concept? You know, his idea of outer beauty? Satan's appeal is the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, 1 John 2, 16. The inner beauty, he's not so concerned. As long as he destroys that inner quality for you, he wants you focused on what's on the outside. What do you see out there? Condemned houses may be beautiful to behold, but on the inside, they're not structurally sound, which makes them dangerous and deadly. They're condemned. They need to be torn down, don't they? So what's his definition or purpose for your building? God says that I may give you life. Satan says that I may give you death. God's great commission to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. Satan's great commission, knowingly or unknowingly, take as many with you to hell as possible. Don't be fooled by that. He's not some red-coated, cute little devil running around with a pitchfork. He is, he is the devil incarnate and desires your soul to take it to hell with him. Satan's model home, the examples of the buildings that Satan has built, I want you to take a tour with me through the Bible and look at the homes that he's built. And remember that every one of these homes started out a precious, innocent soul. And the choices that they made in life helped build the home that they have. When we think about Delilah, you know, she was a, am I on the right slide? Oh, nope. Okay. When we think about Delilah, she was an enemy to Israel in Judges 16, 4, and 5. And think of the things that she did to Samson. She enticed him. She prevailed against him. She afflicted him. None of that is what I would want near me. Would you want that kind of person near you? Well, Samson only looked at her outer beauty, didn't he? She used her feminine wiles. She nagged him because it said she vexed unto death. He told her all his heart. She used false comfort. She made him sleep upon her knees, and that's the end of her story. When Samson met his destructive downfall, we never hear from her again, do we? She was a woman that was constructed by the choices that she made in life through Satan. Then we have Lot's wife in Genesis 19, 1 through 26. And you know, we, the story opens with, okay, just want to make sure I'm pumping right. The story opens with the hospitality offered by her husband to enter the, the two men into the household. It wasn't given by his wife. There was great wickedness in the city. She's not found in the story until verse 15 through 26, and it makes you wonder if she wasn't into the lifestyle that the city offered and the possessions more than following after God. And you know, Luke 17, 32, simple and dire, remember Lot's wife. Well, what do we learn from Lot's wife? That the possessions of this world, the wealth and the, the wickedness that looks so entertaining and so much fun, it only brings destruction and death, doesn't it? Then we have Jezebel, and she's found in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. She was a Zidonian, which was one of the countries which was supposed to be eliminated because of its idolatrous influence. She pulled the Israelites, the, the Zidonians, and through her influence, pulled the Israelites away from God as soon as Joshua was dead, Judges 2.13. 
through the worship of Ashtaroth and Baal during the reign of Solomon and the divided kingdom. So think about what the Zidonian people did to the Israelite nation. Ashtaroth is considered the moon god to Baal's counterpart, the sun god. It's carved out of a limbless tree. Think about that. It's not even a beautiful idol. <laughs> if you could say idols are beautiful. It's not even a beautiful idol. It's carved out of a limbless tree stuck there. And that is Ashtaroth. It's planted in the ground, and the worship involved ritual prostitution among the groves, and its priests and priestesses practiced divination and fortune-telling, and the Israelites fell for it. It's said of Jezebel that she aided him to provoke the Lord God of Israel more than all that had gone before, as is said of her father Omri, 1 Kings 16, 25-26. Ahab was worse than Omri, and why? Because of Jezebel. 1 Kings 16, 30 and 31. Notice the acts which are mentioned which she did. She cut off the prophets. She killed God's prophets in 1 Kings 18, 4. Who ate at her table? 450 prophets of Baal. Well, who do we fellowship? Because that's going to go into some of the construction process of our home. The influences that we hear in our minds. And when I say our home, I'm thinking more your, your body, your temple. I'm not thinking home with your family right now, although that's going to build, obviously. But I'm thinking about your soul and your home that you're building for your soul. Who influenced Jezebel? She had 450 prophets of Baal that sat at her table. Who do we have that influences us? She lied about Naboth because of the greed of her husband, which destroyed Naboth's life. She had no scruples. We never read an iota of sympathy or tears or anything. There was never a question. Just take it from him. Destroy someone else's life. Consider the final assessment of Ahab. None like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. You know, on a side note, if you're married, what kind of an influence are you with your husband? Do you stir him up <laughs> or stir him up like Jezebel did? What, what kind of influence are we permitting ourselves to be to our husbands? And then we have Jezebel's daughter, Athaliah. You know, she's the daughter of Jezebel, and I hate to think that she didn't have any chance because I'm just going to be honest with you, I do not come from the best background. My mother was not the most um, pristine Christian. She lived a life of sin. I grew up in a very dysfunctional home, and I really don't like it when people you know, act like the apple falls, doesn't fall far from the tree. Everyone has a choice, right? Athaliah had a choice. She was set up with a very negative influence to begin with, but she had a choice, didn't she? Her husband walked in wickedness, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, 2 Kings 8, 18. So she had a great evil influence. Well, what did Athaliah do? She killed all the seed royal. She wanted to remain the queen, so she killed her grandchildren. I can't fathom that. Mine isn't even born yet. <laughs> and we call him our baby in our house because he's so special to us. I cannot imagine killing him. And she killed all her grandchildren. She usurped the throne for six years. She was slain for her wickedness in 2 Kings 11, 13 through 16. So you know what goes around comes around for Athaliah. Then we move on to Potiphar's wife. 
She was an Egyptian woman with loose morals in Genesis 39. She tempted Joseph, a man of God who had earned the trust of her husband. Day by day, she worked on him with her words, and she caught him by his garments. She didn't even just speak. She was so forthright, she tried to take his clothes from him and make him stay with her. What a woman. I can't imagine that. I just cannot imagine someone like that. She said, lie with me. She made no bones about it, what she wanted, did she? She lied about Joseph's actions. Her pride had been stepped on at this point, hadn't it? And so now she had to blame someone else. She couldn't let that go. No one even knew that this had happened. So she had to make sure she told her side of the story, the way, it, in her mind, the way it went. She called to the men of the house and put Joseph in his place in prison. So we've got some, some women here that are making horrible decisions, but you know, while it is gravely affecting their soul, it is affecting all of those around them, isn't it? The people they're married to, the men they're married to, the household, it's, it's, it's just a domino effect, the decisions that we make, who we let construct our homes. Then we move to Drusilla. Look at her family tree. Remember, everyone has a choice who they are. What did Drusilla choose? She was the great-granddaughter of Herod the Great. Am I on the right? Nope, we got to catch up. The great-granddaughter of Herod the Great, who slew the infants in Bethlehem in Matthew 2, 16 through 18. She was the great-niece of Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist in Matthew 14, 3 through 12. She was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, who murdered the Apostle James in Acts 12.2. She was the sister to Herod Agrippa II and Bernice, who heard Paul's defense before the governor Festus in Acts 25, who came into power two years after Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea because Governor Felix put down a Jewish uprising with such brutality that the Jewish Sanhedrin complained bitterly to Rome. Felix was recalled to Rome, and Portius Festus had just arrived in the Roman province in Acts 25 in Judea as its new governor. So who was Drusilla? She was married to Felix, Acts 24, 24 through 27, married to a violent man who heard Paul preach the gospel and didn't heed the call. Both of them heard the gospel. She didn't fall far from her rotten family tree, did she? She did not even choose. She had it right in front of her, the path to choose a different ruler, a different person to construct the path for her life, and she stuck with the past. So Drusilla is a sad, sad commentator, commentation on a person's life and the fact that the, the path is right there in front of you, God on this side and Satan on this side, and she went the wrong direction. Then we have Herodias, who was Herod's wife. Herod brother, Herod's brother's wife, really? She wasn't Herod's wife because she was married to Philip at the time. Herod jailed John the Baptist when he preached against their living arrangement in Matthew 14, 2 through 5. She was an adulterer. She used her own daughter to entice Herod to get her ways in Matthew 14, 6 through 7. She was instructed of her mother to ask for John's head on a platter, Matthew 14, 8 through 10. So she was a tutor of sin, wasn't she? She taught her daughter what to do. Then we have Sapphira. 
you know, the pair of greedy saints in Acts 5, it's clear that they had a plan. And being privy to it, they lied to the apostles about the land that they sold and the money that they had. They lied to the Holy Spirit. Is nothing kept away from the Holy Spirit? Second Chronicles 16, 8 through 9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. In context, it is to take care of the righteous, isn't it? So we need to be very, very careful with what we do in our lives. Because the houses that we're building are so precious and so important. And when we look back at these women and we think about the blueprint that they had when they started, who did own their building? You know, God created it all in Genesis, didn't he? And what did he say about creation? He said it was good. And then who entered the garden? Satan entered the garden. And sin entered into the world. So it's the same way in our lives. We start out innocent and pure, right? We, and we grow up into this, this world that God has made, and Satan enters into our lives sometimes. And we have to choose a different path than what he is making available to us. I want to read a poem to you called Building on the Rock. I'm building on the rock. It's going up brick by brick. I'm using the word as the mortar so my faith in God will stick. The rock will be my anchor for every tempest that comes my way, and I'll hold on to its awesome power until the tempter goes away. As the howling winds attack me, my house will not tip or fail, for the rock is the eternal strength that dwells in each and every wall. Through the flood, though the floodwaters will rise, my house will not go under, for its foundation is set in God's grace and is a testament to his wonder. I'm building my house on the rock, not a pile of sand. I'm trusting God to keep it strong so before him I can stand. Okay, if you will turn to Psalm 1 with me. We went through the, very rapidly those women in the Bible because for the most part they're very familiar to you. And we've talked about how everybody starts out one direction, in one way, and we get to a certain age in our life, an age of accountability, and we have to choose, right? Which path are we going to choose? And I want you to look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. You know, this is a progression. You're walking, and then suddenly you're stopping, and you're standing, and then you're sitting with them, right? We need to be very careful about the path that we're choosing in our life and the progression that we're making. And anytime you see ETH in the King James Version like that, that's continuous action. So blessed is the man that walketh continually not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth continually in the way of sinners, nor sitteth continually in the seat of the scornful. He's constantly on the move away from that. It's never a battle that we can let down. 
we always have to fight him. He's always going to be against us, and he's got his servants on this earth in the form of the, the wicked people, and some of your relatives and some of mine, some of your friends, some of mine, some of the people I work with, some of the people you work with, they're following after him. And we have to be so careful that we don't stop and heed and listen to his voice. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Now, in reality, <laughs> you know, in doing lessons like this, you often sit back and think about your own life. And I, I read a verse like that, and I think, where am I on the scale of meditating in his law day and night? I'm not there yet. You may not be there yet either. So what do I need to do? As a woman under construction, I need to remind myself daily. It's the first thing I need to think of when I get up. It's the last thing I need to think of when I go to bed. And it needs to be sprinkled throughout there the whole day. When I first became a teacher about 14 years ago now, I had a really, really rough start. I replaced a teacher in the middle of the year. I graduated in December. I was 40, like Robin said, and I thought I knew everything. I guess I was a teenager again. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I thought they taught me everything in school. They taught me nothing <laughs> about the classroom. And I get in the classroom, and I have almost 20 special ed, special needs kids that I had no folders on. Nobody had told me that they were mine. Suddenly, these kids hated my guts because their beloved teacher, whether they liked her or not, they sure loved her when she left. <laughs> and some new lady came in the middle of the year who had no clue about them, didn't know about accommodations, and the special ed teacher's aide that was supposed to be with me during the day never came into my room. Well, I had no idea that I had these children. I was going home every day crying. Every day, what have I done? Not only do I have student loans now because my husband was so supportive and took care of the house for two and a half years with my kids, and my daughter did a lot of the work those two and a half years with her brothers who weren't helpful very much, especially the baby brother, who's having the baby though now, so he's good, he's gold. You know, all of this two and a half years, I've got student loans, and I'm coming home crying every day. <laughs> what is going on? And I had a lady who was not a member of the church, and I worked with several members of the church in Hernando. This woman was not a member of the church. She knew what a struggle it was that I was having, and she came up to me one morning, and she said, Tish, have you sat in their desks and prayed for the students that are giving you trouble? And I looked at her, and I wanted to smack her <laughs> because I felt so guilty. I said, no, I haven't, and I haven't even thought of that. All I want to do is pop their heads off, <laughs> and I didn't even know why. They were just, I didn't know why. One of them was sitting under my desk all the time, like running her fingers through her hair. She'd been off her medication since Christmas because her parents decided she didn't need it anymore. Oh, she needed it. <laughs> I mean, it was a crazy classroom. And it wasn't for two months till I found out that I was supposed to have somebody in there helping me. And there were accommodations. They were supposed to be taking different tests and all this stuff that I didn't know. No wonder they were all failing. <laughs> no wonder they hated me. But I had never thought to go to God. Not just for the student in the desk that was driving me crazy and insane, but for myself. 
to think, I can't handle this on my own. Now, I don't think that God intervenes miraculously in the classroom, but doesn't it bring peace that you go to him for stress relief? And what if I had taken the time at that time to meditate on his word before I started the day? The little hellions would still be walking into my classroom, but I've started in a totally different peaceful demeanor, haven't I? But see, that's what being under construction means. You're still malleable, right? You, there's still hope for your soul. You can still grow. You can still change. So let's move on and look at verse 3. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. A tree planted by the rivers of water. That's a beautiful, refreshing thought. You know, when you are thirsty, just think of yourself as a tree by the rivers of water. Your, your roots are always going to have moisture and, and refreshment and the nourishment that it needs, right? That's the man that meditates on the law day and night. It's the same picture as a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Okay, that's your life well lived, isn't it? We're being built and planted in the word of God, and so our lives are going to prosper. Now, does that mean everything's going to work out perfectly? Absolutely not. That's, that's almost more like a proverb in this statement. It's not, if you follow God and you do everything right, you will never walk in pain. Then how do you explain illness? How do you explain the loss of a spouse? A spouse? Uh, decisions family members make or your boss makes, you lose your job. Heartache that comes in. How do you explain that? It's not talking about everything that could possibly bring you wealth and happiness. You're going to have it all. That's not what it's talking about. Sometimes the accounts aren't credited on this earth, are they? Sometimes payment's not made until heaven. But if we walk this way, what is our life going to be in the end? It's going to be prosperous. We're going to reach heaven. Verse 4 is a big contrast to that. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Now remember the tree that's planted by the rivers and the waters flowing continuously? On the other hand, the wicked that are not planted in the word of God but are following after Satan? They're like the chaff that just blows away in the wind. What is their life turning into? No matter what it looks like on this earth, they're nothing. There's no substance to them. They're gone, aren't they? Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. You know, when the account is called due on the day of judgment, the ungodly will not have a leg to stand on at all. They'll not have one excuse to offer for their life, will they? I don't want to be in that number. So I want to think of my life under construction and be realistic when I look in the mirror and when I start walking through and, and your heart sinks because of something you thought or said, dwell on that for a minute and think, what do I need to do to change so that I don't have that sinking feeling anymore and I have this peaceful, stressless life because I'm dwelling more in his word and the way he would have me walk for him so I'm not among the ungodly in verse 5. 
For the Lord, in verse 6, knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The way of the righteous and the way of the ungodly. That's really what it boils down to when we talk about your lives being under construction. There is a way. It's two paths. God has set forth the way the righteous should walk and live their lives. And Satan has set forth, and it's big, it's broad, the way for the ungodly to walk. But both paths are clear, aren't they? Both paths. You know, I told you when I graduated from school and I thought I knew everything, there wasn't a manual, literally, that I could go to when a kid sat under my desk. Or when I had a kid that if I had a chandelier in my room, literally would have been swinging from the rafters. It was craziness. I actually had an assistant principal tell me I should lock him up in the closet in my room. And I thought, that cannot be right. And I'm so glad I didn't do it, because it wasn't right. She ended up having a brain tumor. <laughs> and I think that that might have been a mixed match of her brain cells at the moment. But, but I so wanted to. <laughs> I so wanted to put that kid in the closet. He was 6'2", and he was driving me crazy. All of that in the first semester. The, the way it would have been so nice if I had had a book that said, okay, child sitting under my desk, <laughs> what does that mean and what do I do? But I didn't have anything like that. It was all totally subjective and open, and in some ways there were so many rules I had to follow I didn't know about. I knew how to teach the subject material. I didn't know how to deal with the little children in my class that didn't want to learn. So a, a manual would have been so lovely. But you see, God didn't leave us alone, did he? And we often don't look at it. We forget that we have the blueprints. We have the design that he set up for us. And we have the good and the bad. We have all the examples of the, the wicked people on this earth. And some people like to point that to the Bible saying, because that's in there, then God's not a God of love because all we'd see is love. No, the, tr the, it's, the thing is, it's the truth. It, it brings out both sides, and it tells us we can look at all the women we looked at earlier, and we can know what their life was and their outcome. We can know what constructed them and what happened. It's all right here, and that's the path we need to remember because the houses that we're building, if we build them on the rock, which is Christ at his foundation, we will have that solid foundation that he intends for us. I think I'm stopping just a few minutes, well, maybe 15 minutes early, if that's all right. Okay. So do you want to just do a break? Do you need to say anything before now? So, okay, so a break for 15 minutes.